Hello again. Welcome back to Port Save Africa. This week we continue our series on internationalism. Kayade Odenboni discusses his thoughts on differences. He's recently transitioned to the United States and he carefully highlights some of the cultural differences that he's experienced while he's here. I hope you enjoy because I thoroughly enjoyed this too. So uh, I'm going to be talking about what it feels like to transition from one culture to another culture and not just like transitioning from cultures but very opposite cultures right because the Nigerian culture is um, very communal and the American culture is to a very large extent individualistic right and yeah so and I just want to say we can make this like an interaction. You should feel free to maybe pose a question while I'm still talking. And I think I would also raise some issues that I feel we can just talk about. Um, so it's a little bit over a year that I've been in the US. And before I left home, I, I felt like I was sufficiently equipped to experience the American culture. Why? Because I'd watched a lot of American films and read some literatures from from the US. So I I I mean psychologically I was bracing myself for some strange things. By strange I mean on Nigerian things like um, the way a mother would, for example, worry about I mean an American mother would worry about a 13 or 14 year old daughter who doesn't have a date to the prom. I mean, where I come from, <laughs> like, even in your 20s, you don't talk to your parents about boyfriends or girlfriends, right? So, so I thought just seeing things like that and I'm like, okay, there's nothing that's going to be surprising or shocking about America. Like, Hollywood has got me covered. (laughs) 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 But was I covered? Um, I'm sure your your guess is is as good as what I experienced. Not quite. And um, for me, transitioning or negotiating this space of the American culture um, I, I would discuss under certain categories, and the first thing would be confusion. Like, um, there are just certain things that I can't seem to wrap my head around in the American culture. So, for example, the first few months that I got here, I I would often hear people willingly just talk about their age, like, oh, I'm 21, I'm 26, and I was like, oh, cool. People actually feel comfortable with um, how would they have, which is not quite the case in Nigeria. Like people are generally secretive about how would they are for whatever so reason. Because <laughs> <laughs> we don't moisturize. Like I hear people who I have known now for five years, and I cannot get their, I cannot get mm-hmm. their, I cannot get anything, any information about them from them. Like especially the age, it's mm-hmm. like another area. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So you would think, um, but here's the confusion. So I thought, oh, this is cool. People feel comfortable with their age, right? And um, I was talking to this man someday about his wife. He was he 
was telling me about his wife and he just went on and on I was like oh cool and I was like how is your wife lo and behold it says you know that's a rude question to ask in America like I'm sorry <laughs> like <laughs> really I thought everybody felt comfortable but I think the way I've seen it is um, the older people are in the US the less comfortable they feel talking about their age uh, I don't know for what reason but like I've met a lot of people who just anytime they have to talk about age they say oh I'm an old person but they don't mention but the young ones are always like I'm 21 I'm 22 and things like that so any explanation to that I think part of it at least compared to Ugandan culture is um in Ugandan culture, being old is a source of pride. It's like, wow, this person is wise and has lived a long life and we look up to them because mm -hmm. they are old. So actually someone would say, Mzei, to an old man, like my dad has always been saying from when he was like 30, when he was not an old man. He's like, call me Mzei, call me Mzei. <laughs> now he's actually turning 60 this year. So I'm like, dad, we can finally call you Mzei, but here you cannot call someone an old man. That would be like, what? <laughs> what are you doing? So I think part of it is that and at least in Uganda culture, with old age comes more respect, more dignity, mm. more pride. And here it's like, if you're not, I think a lot of it has to do with like sexual attractiveness and like, um, yeah, like youth and sexuality, mm. basically. So I think past a certain age, it's like, okay, you know, being old is not cool. desirable. I, I also think a lot of it has to do with... Um, it, at least among white Americans, you don't really see three-generation households. Like, the idea age among, for whatever weird reason, like, it doesn't bring that same, like, respect, but it also means, like, like you stop working, traditionally, uh, and you retire, and maybe you get put into a home away from your family. And so there's that, like, aid brings, like, obsolescence mm -hmm. like you don't you no longer can do anything like you have to um have everyone assist you and it's not in like a familial way um you don't have that sort of continued connection with relatives which is really sad and it's very true with my family um but i i, I wonder if that's a, a part of it like there's not the same like oh your family lives with you you know your grandparents live with you your great-grandparents mm -hmm live with you in this household um and so that sort of brings a different kind of respect or feelings about aging and what that means for yourself like i don't want to get put out to pasture so i don't want to age because that means i'm going to be useless that's a good point about the familial aspect being a huge difference i think there's another layer um so I'm guessing you started college is how you got here? No. No? Okay, so for me, I've noticed that when I was in college, at like at that beginning stage of college, like freshman year, people were willing to give a lot of information because they were trying to group each other or find their peers. But as we get older, like like at work, for example, in a work environment, people were not that willing to give up their age because we're not looking for friends. We're not looking for, you know, and I mean, the people who did turn out to be around my age sort of became my friends automatically in the work environment. So I feel like people use it the same way they use hometown. 
the same way they use is the same way they use age to try mm-hmm. and group themselves mm-hmm. together and kind of create these connections. Because when I was in college, I was a nineteen year old among eighteen year olds. Automatically, mm-hmm. we could not be friends. Mm-hmm. A twenty one year old. And an 18 year old are not going to be friends at all. An 18 year old, a 16 year old are not. Like, there are these tears that exist when people are younger that I think just set, you know. And then I think the other problem that we have, at least in our 20s, is we attach age to a certain level of success. So I will not tell you my age if I do not think that my age and my success are matching. However, if I feel like I, 24, I'm, li- I'm, I'm good, I can tell you. I'll tell mm-hmm. you, yeah, I'm 24. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. I know I'm, right, I'm proud. at the right level, you know. Mm-hmm. But if I feel like I am, I ain't adulting yet, I'm like, ah, oh, no, it's okay. Like, I mean, the 30 year olds will be like, I'm just, I'm old. <laughs> because they feel like maybe they're still at a certain level in their life where they didn't expect themselves to be. So sure. I feel like it's more mm-hmm. like that idea. I think that's definitely true. I think there's yeah. this like individualistic streak about success and how mm-hmm. early you're supposed to get it. Mm-hmm. And I know at least I felt that way or I'll, if I see someone successful, I'll mm-hmm. try to find their age. And I'll be like, <laughs> right. okay, oh, am I on track? So. <laughs> like, like, okay, they're 28, that's fine. You know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous mm-hmm. But I think that that's yeah. definitely part of it. It's funny because when Claire interviewed for her job and I was already <laughs> there, was I thought she was like, 30 because she was so confident and like so like well equipped mm-hmm. and I was like oh you're slightly older than me cool <laughs> 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 <is great>. <laughs> and everyone yeah. thinks I'm older than I am uh, but I think that's the beard so. yeah yeah my work environment we're like what age are you and I speak with my boss to be older than me no she's my age everybody in my office is my age my, the director of the department I work in is 24 that does not make me feel good <laughs> I'm, I'm very, like, I mean she's my age and we get along but like I still feel like, right? Like, yeah, it's just like, <laughs> it's too bad. So that's, I guess I'll pose the other question of, let's go back to the Nigerian aspect. Why is everyone, why do you think everyone is just hush or about um, in general? Are they private in general or is it just about certain things? That, that, that's the irony. Like, like I said, Nigeria is a communal society. Like people share things basically. So, why people are reluctant to share their age? Honestly, I don't know. Like, but I feel like it has a lot to do also with like what um she said about success. Like, I mean, yeah, that's definitely true. Because going into the university, the the average age of people going to the university in Nigeria is sixteen, and these are usually the people who are most eager to say, "Oh, I'm 16. Yeah. So whereas those of us who went into the university a bit late, mm-hmm. like, like <laughs> you know, yeah. So I, I think that's that's a very valid and maybe almost universal point about success and how much willing you are to share. That's that's really interesting to me because I've I've always been the youngest. I think everywhere I've gone, so I've never had I I didn't really think about this because I'm mm-hmm. always willing to share my age because I I expect yeah. I'm the youngest everywhere I go, mm-hmm. so. I kind of share it to, think, I don't know, yeah, I prefer people know what age I am up front um, and let them make their miscon- let them make their judgments or misconceptions about me and then I can prove them wrong or right or whatever, than, than like them to not know and then it gets to the point maybe I do something and they're like, oh, like how old are you? And I say my age and they're like, oh, really? Like you, you're doing this either for a good or bad way. So... 
I just like at work, um, I think I'm, I am the youngest person on my team and I just, I just showed it, but I never really thought about the other aspect of maybe yeah. I'm making other people feel uncomfortable because I am doing that. Um, which is something I now have to go think about. <laughs> um, but I do, I do want to bring up a point. You did say something interesting about the irony of the fact that Nigerians are communal people, mm-hmm. and I think that we're communal within, or we only share, we share within our communities and our, within our communities only. I think that's one thing. Like in your family, you might share everything, but talking to someone outside your family, you, there's this wall of you know even. I think, especially here, I'd see, I find that people are more open to talk about the problems. Like, let's say, let's say there's something going on and within your, between you and your brother, and you have a good friend. You might be more willing to talk about that here, whereas back home, you put up this, you know, thing like, oh, my family's perfect, everyone gets along. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. everything's, like, screwed up, um, but no one knows because you have to keep this idea of your family because family is so important to us right? right you you want to have this image that your family that your bond is you know is awesome um even though it's not yeah okay just to add to what you said i think the reason why there's so much pressure in african families to be perfect is because the upbringing of the kids and the behavior of the kids lie on the shoulders of the parents so if you step out of line for one second it falls on your parents and parents mm-hmm. are just like no i'm not having that so that's one thing that goes along a lot with like african culture and parents well so well so this is the moment we're having this talk the more i realize that i really don't identify with any culture because i grew up with my parents being missionaries so i moved like every mm-hmm. two years and this was different countries, so I really I'm a citizen of a country, but I don't even speak my native language, you know, stuff like that. But to add to that, I think the reason why um, people that say there's that sense of community within the community, I mean within the family, and not really outside the family, is because it's such a well. This is what I feel every time I go home. It's so competitive. You're always comparing mm-hmm. families, comparing what you own, mm-hmm. and it's it's not and. It's, it's ingrained in the kids whilst we grow up. When we go to elementary school, I remember I went to elementary school in Nigeria before I moved. At the end of the semester, we were ranked in class, and we would, they would line us up <laughs> so you could stand in front and look at the back and who the last person is. And there's just, there's just that competition where you're always trying to be better than the next person to you. So within families, yeah, within families, it's like, oh, look what this other, he's your age mate, he's your same age, look what he's doing, look at that family. So that's, I think that's part of why the we kind of just keep stuff within the family. Well, it's that I sense of competition. I have to add something to yours that is like funny. Well, I, I think it's funny, but like when I was in um, secondary school and high school, which would be like 11 to like 17 years old, right. I went to an, a, a boarding school, right? An all-girls boarding school. Okay. So they used to call the first three and they used to call the last five. Listen, it was like Which one are you in? Yeah, I was always in the middle. That was the safest place to be. But it was always um it was it, somehow like they say when you see your peers doing well you're like, 
man, this person doesn't have two heads. What yeah, yeah, the yeah, yeah, literally yeah. what your parents say, this person right. doesn't have two heads. But the fun side to that was um, being in the boarding school, we had um, the those who were all that kind of ruled and controlled and whatever. Yeah. So every time it got close to like the higher classes, we're all very quiet. We had to hear the first five and the last five because <laughs> we're going to say, you're ruling people all the time, telling them what to do, uh, but you don't have a head for your books. We always used to listen, but oh Lord, it, it, made, right. you, it made you, they have a set, certain way of pushing you that just makes you, I don't know, here will be considered unconventional and I don't know, yeah. all kinds of things. Well, but, abusive, emotionally abusive. Uh, <laughs> but it's done. I just saw a cheat on thing. I mean, I with regards to the to what you raised about HR, of course the conversation is not about age, right? But I think it's more of a, an upbringing thing, you know, because uh, in the US, for example, I don't think people are that pressured about success as it's way, you know, you know, as it relates to their age. For example, uh, like I don't feel comfortable telling people my age. I think you yeah. you witnessed this an event where someone asked about my age and I couldn't tell the person. And it's not like I'm not successful, like I'm 24 and I'm doing a doctoral program, you know, so which is okay for my age, right? But, uh, so I don't really think it's about success, as it were. I think it's a question of upbringing, you know. And at, at times, some people are just not comfortable, you know, giving private or personal information to people they don't really know, they don't, you know, so just to keep that. Yeah, thank you. And, and that's interesting. And the, this whole conversation we've had about the the um, the face of the communal nature of Nigeria as a society. It's really interesting, but um, beyond the family circle, like the way I read um, Nigeria being communal is that the fact that anybody on the street feels like they have access to your space, right? Like you you can't just walk on the street of Lagos. Like a market woman can feel feels like she has a the right to tell you you are not well dressed. Mm-hmm. I mean, that kind of thing. Yeah. So um, going forward, the next confusion in um, the American culture, and these are I find funny, but I think there are so many um, crucial underlying issues there. So um, it's freedom, right? America is the land of freedom, and. One thing I find really curious is how much I've found people talking about unhealthy food in the U.S. And like a lot of people would say, oh, McDonald's is not healthy, or pizza is not healthy, but people eat all these things. Like, I once a court member was saying that, oh, my my mother must not know that I'm eating unhealthy food. So I, I had someone one day like, I don't get it. Like, why do Americans talk about unhealthy food as like something that is just there? And how come there's, I'm sure there's an, there's FDA, right? Like yeah. the organization that seeks to make sure that everything that gets to the public is healthy. And I'm like, how come there's even access to unhealthy food in the first place? Why can't the government make sure that it's only good food, healthy food that goes to people. Now, the interesting reply or response I got was, you know, America is a land of freedom and 
that evil means you have the right to choose the kind of food you want to eat. And I'm like, mm, that doesn't <laughs> make sense. I mean, it would have made sense if, for example, you don't make sure people use their seat belts. Why don't you say people have freedom, so they shouldn't use their seat belts? Like, you are allowing freedom to access unhealthy food, but you are not allowing people to choose to die if they don't want to use the seat belt. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so many contradictions. Um, oh. I feel like, I, <laughs> okay, you have something to say? Well, okay, I was just, you were saying how we don't have, we have so much access to unhealthy food. I was just thinking about how all the corporations, they do control our food. I don't right. think there's any freedom right. in our access. Mm. Yeah. Like, I don't think, especially poor communities who or have either food, food deserts. deserts, that's yeah. not freedom. Like, if they don't have access. Mm. So I actually think we're so... America's very messed up with the food diet. Like, mm. companies who are controlling every aspect of our diet, it's the same ones, and I think it's all after money. I don't think there's freedom in our diet. It's my mm. opinion. Yeah. Like, one example I can think of is KFC here is, like, you know, unhealthy food. But in Bangladesh, they use, like, real chicken. Right. And it's so good. Right. And fresh in Bangladesh. And it's, like, high-class food. So I just think mm. about... That's a good point. Same with Ugandan KFC. It's like upscale. Mm-hmm. Okay. Going there is like for expats only. Yeah. Like, yeah. I want there. Well, and it raises this question of why do our laws get made? And so there's no money in not having seatbelts on people, right? right? But there is tons of money. It can be someone money. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure we wouldn't have seatbelts. Because like, that's what all yeah. I think it also depends on the level of freedom. Because there are people who have access to all kinds of food and people who have the ability to buy and eat meat and they okay. say they're going to be vegan or vegetarian. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. there are people who can't afford to buy meat, people who can't yeah. afford to buy fish. Mm-hmm. They can't be like, well, their life has made them vegetarians by, yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But there are people who choose to do those things. And every time I meet somebody who says, oh, I'm going to get my protein from here, here, there, there, I'm like, okay. You have way too much access to like it is good for you, but like I just it, it's a it's kind of a luxury in my eyes. I understand that people people say they're trying to get healthy, they're trying to do this and they're trying to do that. But in my eyes, it's a luxury because I've seen people who don't have the ability to do that. So oh, even I have an even worse, I guess, different perspective. I don't believe in the idea of unhealthy food. Uh, except in the point where people are like putting to- poisons or toxins in the food, which is arguable because we type out because yeah, oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're eating that. We came to the devil's gusher. I think it's. I think there are other factors that really affect people. And I think they are more economic, and it's not necessarily about having access to food, it's, or even having the money to buy food. But I'm talking about, I think, education-wise. Mm. More so, information-wise, I think people understanding that what is a balanced diet. Because if you really did want to, you could eat a McDonald's burger every single day. But some people will eat it three times a day. Some people will eat it five times a day. So I think, because at the end of the day, excluding some toxins that are might or might not be bad for you, um, it's just bread and and meat and ground meat. Um, mm. It's just carbs and protein looking like breaking it down to its basics so i think it's more about i feel like i don't know if i can really say this because i grew up in in zimbabwe and once in a while we would eat fast food 
fries dipped, cooked the same way, dipped in oil, a burger dipped in oil. You know, it's kind of the same same things. But I look at how often we ate that. Yeah. Not very often, you know. Yeah. And I like we ate eating out is something that is bougie, and it wasn't even necessarily about money. It was just like not the norm for our home. I pe- people who are very wealthy still do not eat out every yeah. single day. So it's more like a li- a culture and a lifestyle about eating out and cooking and what that looks like. And I think cooking gives you control over what you eat. Mm. So, and some people cook and they cook very unhealthy food. Like I lived in the <laughs> South and people would cook, but whenever they think of a meal that they're going to cook, it's fried chicken. And it doesn't matter where you get your fried chicken from. If you're going to just put, but like if you're going to dip it in oil and it's just breading, it's grease, you're eating grease. So, and same thing with Africans, I think we come from like maybe, or even Bangladesh, you've definitely still met some people who are obese there, or we know people who are obese who are African. So diet, I think is, there are a lot of factors that come into it. I think education and stuff like that. And I think just labeling something as unhealthy does not always make sense. Therefore, like limiting access to it does not always make sense as well. So, yeah, I think that's my understanding of that. I'd hate and to, there's 50 million more layers, I guess. So I'd hate to labor on this argument, but I think that... So I, I studied architecture in college, and the, part of the things we, we had to learn how to do was, you know, hey, how do we be good, morally decent architects? So we did a study of Chicago, trying to figure out, okay, per district you lived in, how close was generally what would be classified on healthy food, how close was healthy food? The other question was how cheap was healthy food versus how expensive was healthy food. Now, it's very, it's one of those cult, culture shocks you get here. Um, buying chicken. We used to eat chicken or meat on Sundays. Like, you know, mom was feeling good, you know. Was, you know <laughs> same on dog. Christmas you, Day. Uh, on Christmas Day, yeah, on holidays. It was like, all right, you you know, you all, oh, man, chicken on my plate. We probably, yeah, this, is a, this is a good day. We are, this is a good day. That was the, the example of that. So chicken was expensive. Buying a fall was cheap, like there's you yeah. can get an effort as it's vegetables effectively. Buying vegetables was cheap, but if you wanted to buy carrots, pennies on the pennies on the dollar. So very everything extremely cheap. You come here on the other hand, I mean, has anybody walked into Trader Joe's recently? Like everything is unbelievably expensive. Even the healthy versions of healthy food, like okay, there's Trader Joe's celery, <laughs> but there's also Walmart celery. There's a difference. And Walmart's is cheap, but not as good. And the healthy version is more expensive. So we do have. But what makes I would ask the that process. they so unhealthy. So, so it, is, it, is, it, it is. It is. It is the process. It is the process. I have a friend who works. He, he's a cattle rancher in mm-hmm. Montana, exactly. and he did tell me that the, the meat they sent, the beef they sent to McDonald's, uh, really sick cow. It's the, it's the, it's the worst the stuff that he wouldn't the stuff he wouldn't eat himself without your first choice and, 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 and I think that's like all ground beef like arguably they put interesting right. things anything that's ground right. and it's cheaper but that's the same thing back home like okay maybe not exactly well, no, like in terms of the cow but but if a butcher is running meat back home you know what they do they sell it as ground beef it's kind of like some of these things are but and I don't know how to explain it but at least for me, in my lifestyle, it would be cheaper for me to eat vegetables and cut out meat completely. I cannot afford meat. I cannot afford eating out. So when people talk about cost being the driver of why people, it's more than just money, I think. 
It's called it's ease. It's yeah. Ease. Yeah. Ease. But but all of that is part of cost. Like how long it is, does it, it take you to get to I think I think some of them are like, you know, cycles of poverty and stuff right. like that. But I think when we just try to like yeah. look down at it, the circle at the end. Maybe that's our next conversation. Let's talk let's do a whole thing about food and do it somewhere we can eat. But for now we're talking about transitioning from conscious. So Okay, yeah, so transitioning from the Nigerian culture to the American culture has also entailed a lot of adjustments. Um, and one of those adjustments has been like the way I've, um, I conceive of the concept of respect. So in, in Nigeria, I often refrain from saying Africa because cultures are like even in Nigeria there are many cultures. So the my own culture, the way respect is is structured is it's all about age. So if somebody is older than you then you have to gesture respect to towards them through the kinds of words you use for them and even your body has to gesture respect. So um coming to the US like the first um, place I worked, so um, this woman who was supposed to show us around, show me around, was just saying, okay, so here is this, here is that. I'm like, oh, thank thank you, Miss Brown. And she was like, oh, no, you can call me Bets. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and what just kept ringing in my head is, this is somebody that is probably my mother's age mate. And in Africa, well, in Nigeria, in my culture, like... I mean, many kids don't even know the names of their mothers. <laughs> <laughs> Mama something. <laughs> yeah, so that was a very difficult thing for me. And I kind of went back and forth with her. And I was like, um, I don't feel comfortable. But then again, thinking through, I'm like, okay, this is a new culture. And a friend told me, and I thought it was a very valid point that Maybe calling her Miss Brown would make her feel old. Yeah. yeah. So I also don't want to make people uncomfortable. And even though I felt uncomfortable having to call someone that I feel is my mother's age by a name, um, it's just it's just remarkable how between and I'm talking about November or October two thousand and sixteen. Out between in that space and now, <laughs> I feel so comfortable calling like old people by their names, and I've also been able to establish very meaningful relationships with like there's a very good friend of mine, like is way over sixty, and I call him Rich. Like it's 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 almost very natural now, and I I think to myself sometimes like really what what has given if um. I'd had to stuck to this this culture of you can call older people by their names and but now I can forge meaningful relationships mm-hmm. and so just moving in that mm-hmm. in that space like moving from something that has been deeply ingrained in you and just transitioning it's um, something interesting for me and another thing that I've had to adjust with is 
the idea of greetings. So um, in Nigeria, we greet a lot, especially <laughs> especially Yoruba people. Like when they see you in the morning, there's a greeting for morning, evening, afternoon. Yes, if you haven't greeted somebody in a certain period of time, you start to. What are they doing? It's like, well, they come find you about and tell, and tell, like, mm-hmm. you haven't seen me today. And yeah, like, why haven't you greeted me today? I'm just, I haven't seen you yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for everything, sitting down, you get greeted for sitting down. And just coming to... I'm so confused. Like, I need, I need an example. Well, well done. Well done. Well done. Well done. Great job. And you Great got, landing. <laughs> a lot of the greetings are that plus whatever you just finished doing. or yeah. you, know, you just came back from a drive. Good drive. <laughs> like, well done for driving. Like well done for sitting. Well done for anything. Like if a, if a Yoruba person <laughs> passes by, right? Yeah. Yeah. So much congratulations. Hey, well done for sitting. If a Yoruba person passes by, here, they will greet us for having this meeting. It will be a quick party. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well done. Well done. What is allowed? Yeah. No, it it gives me a better, a little bit of a better understanding because sometimes, like when you watch Nigerian movies and somebody's passing. <laughs> yeah, right, well done. True. So true. True. Yeah, so um, moving from that kind of culture, I, I found that one thing I've really had to like struggle with is passing by people and having to stop myself from really? greeting them. <laughs> yeah, because sometimes I've almost opened my mouth and I'm like, yeah, so that has been a lot of adjustment. But the weird thing though is, um, is what I feel operates in place of greeting in the in the US. And this is of course I'm not by any means trying to generalize. I know that people are different. In fact, when I was naturally like Americans don't feel like they have to greet you all the time, right? And when I was thinking about this, the fact that Americans don't greet, like I just walked down my house like right after a few minutes after that and there was this lady walking on her car and she was like good morning I'm like wow oh, <laughs> so yeah i was like wow I, w- I mean it was really refreshing to have someone greet you i mean someone who doesn't know you but here's the thing i would really want to like really want to understand so there's this signature smile that Americans are. Okay, I feel like everybody like knows what I'm talking about. It's like, they just called the police to your apartment because you're having a party. Like that. And you're like, come on, man. And every Nigerian immigrant, like my friends with whom I came here, like, they've literally been pissed off, like, irritated by this man. Like, it's just something like... And I do it all the goddamn time. <laughs> <laughs> and I catch myself, I'm like, why are you doing that? You're just 
like necessitating them having to like do something back at you. <laughs> right, right. It's so I'm weird. just like and, roping them into a social interaction they didn't want to have. I feel horrible. And which you didn't even want to have. Like, and I'm not you pointing was, at no, you. No, like, no, no. Like, the average American, like, it's not like they. Re- so this is how I have like passed through with this, this thing. So. Initially, Initially, I thought, oh, this is very warm, genuine, and I would also respond with a genuine smile, but I would notice that that smile never stays like, it just comes and goes, and I'm still there like, and I began to feel silly, like, this person is not smiling at you, wake up. So, and... Yeah, yeah, it's really yeah so I mean it's just very interesting like um, the fact that I mean that smile really is you don't really care to uh, maybe so gesture much. anything <laughs> it's like what many Nigerians say is that it's plastic like that yeah. smile is very plastic <laughs> yeah but I think I'll come back to this smile at the latter end of what I'll be talking about which is the lessons and blessings of transitioning for me. So it's not really an indictment. Really. Yeah. So it's just um, what I've also come to learn and how I've been able to see my own culture from that. Um, but to, to come to, and I think for me, this is the heart of um, transitioning for me. Um, the, perhaps the most profound struggle I've had um, in the U.S. is, and it's it, it's about communication, and it's it's it it sounds so mundane, but it's like a deep, real struggle, and it has many layers. It's complex in many ways. First of all, like back home, listening to people was not a task, but here. I found that I've had, I mean, just to hear people speak takes a lot of effort on my part, like concentration. Like in Nigeria, absent-mindedly, I can pick up what people are saying. I can listen to conversations. But here, like it's difficult when an American speaks and I'm not paying attention. I definitely won't hear what they are saying. So just that sheer effort that that's, um, demands on my part, like, and even when I'm talking to somebody one on one, like, I have to be so focused <laughs> and watching them with full attention, and like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> sometimes it's just so much work. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's a big thing, and what is even bigger than that is, um, talking to people. So obviously. Uh, we talk differently. Americans speak differently. Like, and um, every time when I speak to an American, and every time I hear like, "Pardon me" or "Say that again," <laughs> like, I mean, a lot, a whole lot is happening. A lot, a whole lot is happening within me. It's like, what did I say wrong? I mean, it's just a natural. There's just an instinctive battle that begins in my mind. Like, how could I have said that? Like, I just feel like I've said something, I've not pronounced something rightly, and that is why they are saying, pardon me. And perhaps it's not even the case. I just feel yeah, because 
many times Americans, even to fellow Americans, say, oh, say that again or something. It's just like, they didn't hear you. But it's a different dynamic entirely because as someone who is coming from, I mean, who doesn't speak American, every time I hear